Star Trek is not a good show, but <laughs> its appeal comes from the fact it has all the ingredients for you to think about and imagine the perfect show. <laughs> I think that applies to a lot of good science fiction. People will say, like, these are my favourite episodes, and they'll have maybe 20 episodes that they absolutely love. And then, like, a tier below that where they're like, yeah, they're okay. And then a much larger tier of, I think these are bad. Yeah, this is all the dross, and it makes up the majority of all the energy that went into making this show. <laughs> Red alert. All hands to battle stations. Engage. Hello and welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. My name is Jack Lewis Evans. First Officer Sean Morley reporting. Don't talk like that, please. Yes, sir. Uh, we're not doing that. We're not doing this. Going to red alert. What? Why? Roleplay rejected. Shields up. I'm not doing this. This is cringe. Immersion broken off the starboard nacelle. Character integrity at 60%. What character am I? Captain Jack. Well, Captain Jack is actually associated with another franchise and actor that we definitely don't want to be promoting on the podcast. Subspace anomaly detected. Allusion to non trek media or non-Trek third-party tie-in media detected on the bridge. Uh, uh, Ensign Morley, I order you to stop this. Yes, sir. I'm already trying to stop the anomaly. Right, look, can you just uh, help me boost the signal? We need people to share this episode on social media, and can you open hailing frequencies and let people know they can support our work on patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party? Readying retweets, Captain. Do it. Order not understood. Uh, Go. Send tweet. Sorry? Send the tweet. Sorry, sir, maybe the Universal Translator is acting up. Did you say acting up? Sean Morley. Oh, yeah. Would you say I have trek-pilled you? Yes. I'm trying to think of a caveat, but I don't really have one. Yeah, I have, yeah. I think it's embarrassing. I think actually it's embarrassing. You know, Why is it it's not really something I want out. I don't, <laughs> I don't want that out loose. I think it is embarrassing as well because the onboarding mm. process you were to put me through, which I think includes a number of years of you just dropping Star Trek references in conversations, yeah, 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 yeah. knowing that I don't understand what you're talking about, <laughs> almost like at some point when I realise me and you have a long-term social and professional <laughs> relationship, I think, would it just be easier to watch this show so i can understand every fifth thing this guy is saying because i could have been lying as well i could have been saying oh, that's like since star trek went and just making it up yeah you could be just using it to author your own little sci-fi <laughs> fiction and I'd be like well it was in a tv show i guess i guess it's part of some sort of greater canon it's the evans composed season eight of tng yeah why not Mm. Do you know that's that guy who um, made up all of the uh, plots of the episodes of Street Sharks and because no one really cared about that show, it got copied by like Wikipedia and IMDB and stuff. And what? I don't know about this. Explain this. Someone, as a joke, mm. realised no one had written down episode synopses for Street Sharks mm. and so just made up a majority of the blurbs including like inventing new characters like a female shark what and because no one had enough investment in street sharks street sharks 
remember it was like the alternative to biker mice from Mars? Oh yeah, okay, I know biker mice from Mars. Yeah. Right. Well, imagine the sharks. Yeah, yeah. And there's I'm actually there, if less there. plot. There's yeah. less plot. And also, the design of street sharks are weird because shark, humanoidifying sharks is a lot harder than doing it to any mammal. Mm. And no one had any investment of it, so a guy just wrote out, "Here's all the plots for all of them." They got picked up by like larger media aggregate sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sort of absorbed into the machine. Fascinating. But then people started Mandela. The guy who did it found people Mandela affecting that they had memories of seeing those episodes that he fictionalized. Yeah, I can't guarantee that. I can't guarantee that I've not accidentally convinced myself that something happened in Star Trek and made reference to that. That could have mm. happened. I could have done an accidental. And I think with the nature of the show, you you improve it in your own head. Like you, you make excuses and reasons for its own logic in your own head. Yeah. Then if you go back and watch the episode, you're like, oh, it doesn't actually make any sense. I came away. <laughs> the joy of Star Trek is that it's like a mental exercise. It's the least passive show you could mm. possibly watch because you need to be doing as much work as the writing team in real time as you watch it. I think much like a lot of great sci-fi, including Doctor Who, it's it's good. Not just because of what it is, but because of what it could be. The, the best thing you can say about it is that for all its flaws, mm. you know when like a HelloFresh thing just sends you a meal, <laughs> but it's like you have to cook it. It's, they send you the parts of a meal. Yeah. Star Trek regularly serves up all the components of what could be the best show ever made. That's not how they've assembled it. They've got all the stuff from HelloFresh and every now and then they just spill poison in. But if you're a good cook, if you're a good cook, and we are teaching you to be a good cook, you'll know how to take that yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be able to extract that on the fly and just have a nice time. So we're coming up from quite different angles because I was I was Trek pilled as a child mm. watching Next Generation and the others nineties Trek on the BBC that prime slot after the Simpsons when they put Buffy was in the same slot yeah and before that as a as a young child I had watched the original series I was got as a youth whereas you've been adult Trek pilled by my clunky strategy that I developed over years which is that you cannot just say to someone oh, you should watch Star Trek and then they go to the start because they'll just be like oh my god this is dreadful you have to either if if they need a season give them season three of the next generation just a couple of episodes like we did a uh, like a patreon thing ages ago where you watched a couple of what are regarded as good episodes Mm. and then went back and watched from season one do not if anyone's considering getting into star trek don't start with the original series and 100 don't even start with the first episode of tng i know you think that makes sense but it's very serialized so it's it's designed to be this network show where the episodes are pretty much one and done 45 minutes you can just drop into it and you know what's going on you're not missing out on anything by just doing an episode so don't worry about that if you're thinking of starting it it's bizarre that that is the way you get people into this the show that there's so many bad episodes i think i even i i i've got i haven't watched strange new worlds but the the newer stuff isn't hasn't reached the heights of the heights of this stuff yet but it's probably still better than season one and two of TNG because they had like 20, over 20 episodes a season that they just churned through before they figured out what it was and what was good about it. What's like a bird's eye description of Star Trek for someone who hasn't got the first clue? Because I was anti, I was anti-Trek pilled, I think. Because you, you're right, it was, on, it was on terrestrial television in prime time. The people I knew who were Trekkies, and also there's the whole uh, Trekkie, Trekkie freak. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah, one of like, them, I'm one of them stereotype but it was my uncle who was a, yeah. a cop yeah. <laughs> yeah do you like it like it was my uncle and my aunt who were on well just bad terms with mm. a lot of the family now oh god uh, because of their opinions on star trek i think because of stuff that's downstream of why they specifically yeah. like star trek maybe so you could you could draw some links but i won't because it might get back to my family and <laughs> then my um like my ex-stepfathers mm. <laughs> parents who were like 
core mining town reactionaries. Mm. They probably liked TOS, but I didn't know any series distinctions. I just knew Trek. Yeah. Literally the worst of my familial connections like this. So <laughs> I shan't. Simpsons it must be off. cursed. It yeah, must Simpsons be cursed. then PlayStation is my schedule. Thank you. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I think there's a lot of stuff that's good about it. There's cool tech, especially if you watch it in the 90s. Like now you look at the tech and you're like, oh, right. That's like a bit like a touch, you know, a touch screen. That's like an iPad. This was the eighties. Windows 95 didn't exist yet. The idea of these like black sleek things and then the image changes on it and then you can interact with the image by poking it. That's bonkers. It's not quite classic sci-fi design, no. which I'd say like the TOS has these really clunky, multicolored um, like very mechanical 60s. keyboard yeah, yeah, yeah. buttons. And I love like Ridley Scott's alien computers where yeah, it's all yeah, like yeah. a horrible landlord's cream colored <laughs> computer system. And here they've, it, it feels like they've tried to think a lot about ergonomic design yeah. and think about like what would be a sensible way for people to have computers literally all around them. But what I still like is that everyone's got all these personal gadgets, which seem like fair enough now mm. that we all have smartphones. But there's still a lot of like, oh, if I want to do X, even though we're in this like multi-network coordinated full computer, <laughs> I have to press this one button that's in this one place. Like I have to go to different terminals. And I, and I like that, that retro-futurist element of like, that's the this computer. That's the only place I can check on this radar sample scanner. All of my track knowledge is trying to say, well, I, you know, actually you could reroute any control system to the bridge if you wanted to, but I'm pushing it down. I'm pushing it down. The listener doesn't yeah, want even it. Even then, like, the, way that, the way that they reroute it is still, it's with panels and with pulling out little, yeah. little USB-like things. I like the touchy-feely nature of their conception of future was that it's still got like different hardware does one job, but you can mm. just touch it with your finger rather than... <laughs> rather than do a lot of keystrokes. The, uh, I like the thing where they kind of, they invented the iPad Kindle thing, but each piece of information is on a separate iPad or Kindle. It's like downloading a PDF bricks your uh, Kindle. <laughs> That's its job. <laughs> most people's favourite two characters on TNG, because they get the most screen time, are Picard and Data. And Picard is the captain, Jean-Luc Picard. French guy with British accent, played by Patrick Stewart. He's actually from Huddersfield, but obviously learned that accent in drama school. Yeah. And uh, he's always got like a stack of... When, it, when, it, when they're depicting him like being busy Captain Picard, he's got a stack of these things on his desk rather than yeah. just one. And that, But that visually depicts this guy's busy because you couldn't depict how many emails are in his inbox. That Yeah, they hadn't conceived of like a little icon that says 400 unread messages. But even so, you'd have to get the camera and truck <laughs> over his shoulder yeah. right into it to be like, this guy's got 800 emails. He's either very busy or disorganised. <laughs> and they're not shooting a lot. Everything's shot like flat lighting. Mm. They were crunching these out over 20 episodes a year. Nuts. Yeah. But before we get to the characters, like, again, bird's eye view of why people like it. It's kind of this, like, positive utopian vision of the future, a post-scarcity future where humanity has learned from these horrific wars that have happened and now they have this, like, diverse crew that is exploring space, not for imperialism, they reckon, and we can get to problems with this later, but because they just, they're just interested and they want to devote their lives to learning and finding out about, you know, new life and new civilizations and exploring, finding out about others and through that process, finding out about themselves. It's cheesy, right? But it's good. It's like utopianism served up as a 40 minute fondant. It's yeah. like completely full on. 
the world presumes that various problems have just already been solved mm. and they come up as like a historical footnote, like prejudice. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. It's like they're like talking about the steam train, you know? And they'll encounter characters, they'll like encounter a super divided alien species. Really early doors, I think they unfreeze or find some 20th century capitalist guy mm, and, he's, yeah. and he's just looking at all the tech, all this post-scarcity technology, like they have these things called food replicators that just magic food into being and it, and it wouldn't matter. I, don't, I think you could just, you know, eat ice cream and it would taste like ice cream to you, but it's the computer scientifically made it so it's just perfectly balanced and you get everything you need from it but and this guy's just like how much did this cost and how much money can i make from this and then Ca- yeah Captain who's Picard, got the pattern on this thing yeah, yeah. Captain Picard's just like that's not a thing anymore what are you on about and he's like bamboozled and their depiction of that is so nice it's not like yeah. hand in hand with their idea of like what's a human being like if they had all their needs mm. met which i think is always an interesting thing to talk about yeah to them because all their needs are met any form of like capitalist or avarist or like avaricious guys or or ladder climbers they're not viewed as like the the menace or the baddies it's more like why are you being weird what's this (laughs) it's like what what do you want i just want a big house and 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 food and be respected yeah you can just have that by default we're in a post-caste society the things you want you can just have them you don't need to like sell loads of jam or oppress another person here you go they they just can't get their head around these guys and that's kind of funny it's like rather than treating the ideology of like 20th century American capitalism as the big bad. It's just treating them like weird little guys. And that's quite fun. It's great. So that's one of the things that's like, you know, warm and cozy about it is that like, it's basically not an economic class society. Like distinctions of wealth and ownership are gone. Resources and services are just accessed based on need. And because people are more equal, they have more freedom. And that's why, and, and then some people, the show, you're following like a spaceship and you don't really explore Earth and society outside that, but you get like a, a kind of shadow of it, a picture of it from what's happening in, in Starfleet and on the Enterprise. And there's lots of different people on there. There's there's kids on this ship and then there's the people who are in the crew and all the people, everyone's really good at what they do. They're like really good at engineering or really good at medicine or really good at being a an empath. Yeah, really good at chatting. <laughs> And then they just go out and apply that to stuff and learn about stuff and like test themselves. And it's it's really interesting. So there's the utopian aspect of like the economics, but there's also just how people interact with each other. And there was a bizarre remit for writing a piece of drama from Roddenberry where there shouldn't be any tension between the characters on TNG, which I think was a weird restriction. And I think they slowly abandoned it after Roddenberry got less involved. But nonetheless, it's sort of still there a bit where there's not, as you would see in a lot of other shows, where there's just people aren't uh, like lying to each other or betraying each other or going behind each other's backs. The characters get on with each other and also work well together. And even like Picard's like leadership style. Yes, of course, it's still hierarchical, but they'll have a meeting and they'll sit around and he will almost always start a meeting. He's not telling them what to do. He's going to say suggestions and Mm. then everyone will say, well, I think this, I think this, I don't know, maybe I think this. And they like talk out and then they make a decision and they just talk through things very logically and practically and from from that perspective of what's the ethical thing to do here? What's the best thing to do? It's just, it's weird. If you hadn't watched it, you're probably like, what the hell is this program? But yeah, I'm just trying to explain it. Spoiler: People free. disagree, but it, that those disagreements never foment into like long-term character friction. No, no. Everyone fundamentally respects each other, and at various times, I like look. We work together, and we have this big thing. But we're, I'm your friend, mm. and so I want you to have a good quality of life. There are some episodes where you see people having to deal with 
complicated workplace interpersonal problems mm, mm. and you just see them deal with it yeah. in a very clear-headed responsible way in a yeah. way that no other show would do because you'd be like uh hello that drama is this the story factory <laughs> yeah, that's so why are you shut in the factory that's the engine that yeah. tells the story these guys are having a dispute and then halfway through an episode they're like earlier i said something to you that i think was disrespectful i do value your opinion and i want you to feel listened to here I, I hope I can, you know, do better with that in the future. And they're like, thank you for saying so. You know, it <laughs> jogs on and goes yeah. back to being about an alien. But you're like, that was such a strange thing to have in an episode of a TV show. It's just a, such a weird way to, but like you say, that's like the starting point of writing a lot of fiction is that you think of a character and what's interesting about that character. And then you think of it in terms of tension. So there's the tension between, you know, what the character wants and what they really need. There's a, there's a tension in the character between what's good about them and their flaws. These characters don't really have flaws ironically they accidentally give them flaws which we'll get into in the next section but they they're written i think intended to be like almost like super people mm. basically so they don't have tension within themselves and then they don't have tension between each other like they're not as a writer you you think of the tension inside the character then you think of the tension between characters even a comedy bit right you think of like a comic aspect of a character and then you think of other characters that can kind of trigger that aspect of that character there is just none of that in tng mm. There isn't like Deep Space Nine, which which comes later, but we're talking about TNG here and it's just built so they get along and they're good at what they do, which is a bizarre premise for a like a prime, like I say, prime time TV show. And even though it's like sci-fi and they do meet aliens and every now and again, you're just in thought experiment territory. It's like, mm. what if a thing existed in the world that was like this? What would, mm. what would you think about that? Huh? But primarily the interest of the show is very social. Mm. You meet a planet and a planet is a, just a society, it's just a city, and there'll be a problem that is principally just a problem about people. Yeah. When thinking about it as the Picard and then the Enterprise is the ship that's part of a larger federation and there are beings that are beyond it and are just new. Yeah. And so they don't just need to think about what is this social problem. There's also this post-colonial hangover yeah. that's a shadow over the whole show of being like, well, on what grounds are we sticking our oar in here? Mm. And and that wedge is often more the focus than what the solution would be if you were happy just to get involved and mess in other cultures. There's this idea in the in Star Trek called the Prime Directive, which is apparently like the one rule of this like Starfleet organization that they shouldn't interfere in other civilizations but they always break it that's like one of the points of tension is they have this rule and then they break it for because of circumstances or ethics or whatever and that's one of the points of tension that there is and it's just it's just really interesting the idea that non-interventionism is a key thing especially being something from america produced at the end of the cold war you can see what it's a reaction to yeah but even as they explore this idea of like hardline absolutist non-interventionism <laughs> yeah we're not going to meddle in other cultures but obviously you can think of thousands of reasons yeah. why you might think yeah. an absolutist line on that <laughs> and so the show never settles on it it flips back and forth mm. picard at, at times leaves people to persecution and abandonment yeah. and at times rescues individuals that he values at the risk of a society having aspects of their culture undermined by it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, ain't, it's, it's, it ain't consistent. No, but it, in being inconsistent, that's sort of, he and the show addresses this inconsistency. Mm. I know it's going to be a result of writers' rooms and different staff members and the revolving door of, of creative talent behind a show like this. But I feel like it makes a consistent whole 
when you think that that question Mm. doesn't have a one and done kind of answer. TNG is like a container for short stories, like mm. just interesting sci-fi short stories where you're reusing the same characters and that, that variation is really interesting. And we should, do, we should do like the headlines of the characters in TNG. So you've got Captain yeah. Picard, he's the captain. He's played by uh, Patrick Stewart. Does a lot of, he, every now and then he's going to deliver a banging monologue. Then you've got Data, a kind of continuation of Spock and might be, you know, can be argued to be seen as a sort of avatar of perhaps a neurodivergent individual who struggles with understanding and expressing emotion, which again has loads of problems with it, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, and he's an android who's like super, super, super clever and super strong, but doesn't understand human emotion or gut instinct or things like that. Deanna Troy, who's an empath, and she often does things like there'll be a character who's angry very clearly. And then she'll tell Captain Picard, I'm sensing that this guy's angry. angry. It's the two characters that are showing an awareness yeah. of the uh, neurotype demography of the fan base. Yeah. Someone is red-faced, slamming their fist down, saying, I can't believe you've done this. Yeah. And Diana just leans over and goes, going to clarify. I think he's annoyed. Yeah. She's explaining. Straight down the lens and goes, he's annoyed. And it says, the show's not normally subtitles, but subtitles pop up then go, yeah, he's yeah, annoyed. Yeah, yeah. And then it says, write that in your copybook now. She's she's explaining to the captain, but she's not. She's explaining to you. So that there's a thing. All sci-fi has the thing where they'll do some techno babble, and then they'll go, "Tell it to me in plain English," and they'll be like, "It's like an egg. If you dropped an egg, it would crack." You know, they just say, "Yeah, yeah. we're going to shoot a big space bullet at this, and it will." break i don't understand yeah it's like if you shot a normal bullet at a thing and it would break <laughs> yeah oh thank god i and all my friends back at the ranch understand this now and geordie does that a lot who we haven't spoken about yet but deanna troy does that for emotions mm-hmm. she's she's the uh the give me the headlines which is quite an interesting thing because the normal trope is explain this very technical thing to me in simple yeah. terms but she's like explain the emotional context of this in simple terms and and interestingly she is like a bridge crew so the telepath empire a ship's counsellor is her role. She is like on the bridge a lot. She's got to be involved, which is interesting. Different than a, certainly, it's still militaristic, of course, but it's the idea that, that um, like people's well-being and that it's like just this person who's always there. It's interesting, especially given when it was made, what the going for counselling and getting mental health treatment stopped being like the exclusive privilege of mm. yuppies. Yeah. Probably US, only yeah. in the last 15 years. So yeah. back then the idea that it was sort of rolled out as a public service for everyone that was just expected you're upset yeah. is something bothering you there's a service rolled into what we expect people to be able to access here you know it's next to the canteen next to the food <laughs> you just chat yeah chat about why the phase are killing your cat made you feel weird which comes back to that thing of like it's a post-class society that allows for more fulfilling and meaningful life for individuals and people's choices about how they devote their time and labor is totally different because it's not driven by scarcity and the need for money to survive it just kind of has all these other effects and i think that's interesting then you got geordie geordie laforge played by uh levon burton a blind head of engineering and i think they were going for like a diversity thing with him being blind uh in addition to him of course being blind but they, they do that by giving him a machine that allows him to see more than any human. A little bit of a have your cake and eat it. Mm. At times, he becomes a really good avatar for disability self-advocacy. Yes, yeah. Especially when it comes to like, wouldn't it be better if you didn't have to look through the visor and you could look through organic eyes mm. and he has to like advocate for being allowed to be who he is. There's there's a little beat in his character that they, I think they state it once, so it never comes back, but the, the visor hurts him. But yeah. it never really becomes very relevant, but holding that in your head <laughs> through seven seasons, you're like, wow. Yeah, again, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, that's a cool idea. I wish I explored that more, but the idea is 
interesting. And then you've got Tasha Yar, who's the head of security. And then she is superseded eventually as head of security by Worf, the Klingon. And that's a new element of the sort of diversity. The original series had this you know, diversity of crew. This is like in-universe diversity. So the Klingons were in the original series, these sort of pretty xenophobic, pretty racist idea of like, you know, the warrior enemy. Fully barbarians of yeah. the day style stuff, but in space, like yeah. Roman Empire style. Everyone outside of here is just knuckle-dragging barbarians. Yeah. But now we've we've taken that and we've put it in the cosmos. And Worf's an interesting thing because his dynamic is that he's raised on Earth by uh, Russian humans, but he is, of course, a Klingon. His understanding of his own civilization and culture is filtered through the sort of mythologized version of it that he's consumed as an outsider. He has a, like a reverence and a version of the role of honour and stuff in Klingon society, that is a, is a really interesting thing that TNG explores. He seems real 2D early on, but they, trust me, they fixed that. Played by Michael Dorn, who again is black. Then we've got another, another white guy, Will Riker, who's kind of just there as backup Kirk. He's like, in case Picard wasn't popular, we've got this other white guy that can step in as captain. And he's a bit he's, more uh, yeah. renegade, sexy man. Picard is, I think TOS wants to pick up and twist on like buccaneering voyager high seas yeah. you know the kind of thing where you land on an island there's something weird there mm. but do away with all the uh, exotica and colonialism of <laughs> going to random islands and put it in space where mm. you could at least argue <laughs> there's something <laughs> some better underpinning that and geordie like talks about ships loads early on it's clear they're really conscious of that um picard is an attempt to move away from the buccaneer archetype and into just the um, sort of a statesman philosopher type mm, figure mm. who's just like, I believe in the following five things. They dictate my actions. <laughs> and so I won't do anything unpredictable. <laughs> Whereas Riker and, is an ape. Yes. Riker <laughs> only loves two things, to kiss his trombone and to kiss anything else. <laughs> There's an episode where he finds a game that seems to, it like beams lasers into your eyes and you it seems to make you in a permanent state of like orgasmic bliss. And he accidentally gets everyone on the ship addicted to that, which is a means for these aliens to take over the Enterprise. So Riker's horniness is a security risk. Yeah, he only gets into it because someone he wants to fuck. There's a whole, there's a, there's a, there's a horniness underpinning to there's the show, horniness, yeah. which is honestly very strange. And they've yeah. got this whole fuck planet that they sometimes come up yeah. and it's almost like a nod, nod, wink, wink. Someone's going to fuck if they go to yeah. that planet. It's called the planet just Which was suggested. Suggested by uh, the guy who plays Picard, suggested that the captain needed to have sex because he hadn't had sex yet, uh, and they needed to have an episode where he went to a planet and met a woman and had sex. Uh, and yeah, and there's this very strange from. time travel intrigue plot grafted onto what is transparently Patrick Stewart fucks because up until that point, <laughs> up until that point, and actually even during it, because yeah. I think you can write that out of the canon so yeah. easily as someone's fan fiction accidentally slipped into the uh, pages of the writers' room. I would say. That Jean Luc Picard is the biggest and best Volcel icon <laughs> that there is. As opposed to Geordie the incel. We can get, I think we do that in the second half. Let's, let's, we, there's a lot to say there. But yeah, Volcel Picard, I love that. Then you got the doctors. So for most of the show, you got Beverly Crusher. But in season two, you get a different doctor for one year, Polanski, who I prefer because she's more like uh, Bones in the original series. And she kind of breaks that mold of. The other characters a bit, and she is a little bit. I think she pisses the other ones off a little bit more. She's she's she will wind people up a little bit more. She's a little bit more confrontational, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Polanski than Crusher. Let's not forget Wesley Crusher. 
who is I'd love to. the gifted boy. I guess the idea is is that like the audience for this is is young boys, so let's put a young boy in it. Well, also, is that the is, idea? I, uh, I hate Wesley, I, I've hated Wesley Crusher since I was a kid, so I don't know. There was an idea made to say this is a show about families. So mm. many of the key story moments and so many of what's considered like a meaningful character beat is about someone exploring the idea of a family, whether it's a robot or Wolf's yeah, adopted yeah, human yeah. parents whose culture yeah. he fundamentally doesn't respect. <laughs> um, he likes prune juice. Yeah, he likes prune a juice. Warrior's and that drink. allows him to remember being raised as the only <laughs> warrior alien yeah. in a small Russian town. <laughs> <laughs> the previous and only other series that preceded this of Star Trek was was very like streamlined military buccaneer kind of show. Mm -hmm. And as well as Picard's characterization, there's also this idea that this now with Enterprise is just purely a research vessel. And because they don't expect any conflicts, there's no great war really going on. All the families can come too. And so suddenly the people who run these ships are having to adapt to that. And Picard does not like children. There's, There's something in its exploration of humanity in space that having families be the focus seems really coherent with that and also it raises the jeopardy because as soon as something goes wrong you're like you brought loads of fucking kids here <laughs> every time you go in somewhere it's like we should check that out this bloody black hole it's like you got like a hundred kids you're taking a primary school to a black hole are you mad <laughs> i was thinking that where there's yeah there's an episode where they're like oh it's as a last resort we're gonna have to self-destruct the ship <laughs> are we gonna get the kids off or <laughs> yeah do you know what why don't you have two ships right one where you can take loads of risks and why don't you have one where the kids live on it? And that one, the captain of that's like, I probably won't take any big risk. I'll, I'll just radio the risk ship. Yeah. I still like it. And it's one of those things where it's like, it doesn't make sense, but I still like it because it's they're trying to back <laughs> off the militarism, aren't they? So they're like, it's not yeah. just a military vessel. It is an exploration <laughs> vessel. And but people would have their families, the but we're going to constantly put children in peril. Because it's still the, need Jeopardy because it's space. It's a space show. Yeah. yeah. Also, you get Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan whose character mm-hmm. basically just takes on the functional role of what Deanna Troy would make sense to do of person people talk to about their lives, but oh well. Um, but it's the whole thing is it's like pluralistic, right? It's pluralistic. All cultures, races, species are respected and work together towards a, a common goal and they're all valued for their unique contributions. Prejudices has been overcome. Discrimination is gone. Uh, and as and much as they don't and can't go into all the details on how that's been accomplished. No. I think part of it is the, the, the sheer novelty of the show being when and where it was. Mm. It was a huge mainstream show mm. where capitalism is not only abolished, but the idea of capitalism and militarism are come up and are critiqued as mistakes from humanity's past yeah. was shown every evening at prime time. And that is mind-blowing. And it was huge. Like Paramount's a big company and Star Trek was their biggest property, even when it was just the original series. So for 20 Mm. years after it was cancelled, 70s and 80s, Star Trek was their biggest property and biggest show. And it was reruns. That is crazy to think about. Just this completely uncynical, utopian view of humanity's future, where everyone's like working towards these common goals of like mutual prosperity, mutual aid happiness, learning. And contrast this huge show with how many other big shows there are that are just about like horrible, horrible people. And I know most of the people that enjoy these shows are aware that like Heisenberg and Tony Soprano and Saul are not good people. They're aware that that's the point of the show. And it's just like 14 year old lads who are like, oh yeah, Sigma male morons. 
And obviously you can have a really good show that's about someone who's bad, but isn't it interesting that you could have a show that's about interesting sci-fi ideas and the idea that humans are, are good and it's interesting that people are good. And because of its hugeness and cultural significance, you know, you can't riff on it. Like any sketch mm. or, or comedy riffing on Star Trek yeah. always falls flat because the show itself is funny enough. It's really funny, yeah. It's, it's a funny show in that it is like... It's, it's campy and it's mm. silly and, and all the designs and everything's a bit rubbish and badly aged. A lot of mm. the stories don't hang together. And none of what I'm saying I consider a critique because no, that's, there's a lovability to how shit it is at times yeah. that allowed me to warm to it faster than if it was like, if it was pristine and everything held together the way mm. it would, it would be like literature and it wouldn't be a laugh and you couldn't put it on with dinner, you know? I mean, and the fact that it, it's, it's and because it's so singularly pursuing Human beings are inherently virtuous. Scarcity is gone. We've done away with all the bad parts of our culture where we hurt and we're prejudicial against other people. They pursued that to the nth degree, and now it's like done. It can't like be done again. You can't make another thing that's just a bit like that because you'd be living in the shadow of Star yeah. Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it has to just be like acknowledged. You know? <laughs> it's such a huge. It's a huge thing to have entered into the the world of media and utopian thinking. Like this message of, I know the stupid episodes where like Dr. Polanski says to Data, well, you're, they have this thing called the holodeck where you, it's basically like VR, but they can just, everything's made flesh and you, any story you can think of, you, future, past, whatever, you can just go into it. Data does these ones with Geordie where he's cosplaying as, they're, they're cosplaying as uh, Sherlock and Watson. And Data just pisses Geordie off because he's just smashes through it because he's got a super, super computer brain. And then Polanski's like, ah, but you couldn't solve anything with Go or there's no one who is a appropriate foe for you. So then the episode is about Moriarty becomes as intelligent as Data and then mm. becomes self-aware that he's a hologram and tries to like take over the ship or whatever. So there's like really, you know, there's like really silly, there's silly stuff in this show, right? But nonetheless, it has this fundamental message of equality and understanding that's threaded through everything, this optimism that just massively resonated with people, like mainstream audiences. And it's, as much as I think it could be criticised for being smug in its like oh, progressive time. politics, yeah. um, it is nice that the show's just kind of saturated in that presumption and it's not like always looking at it. Sometimes it's just a campy, almost Doctor Who-ish type affair, mm. but it's still couched in a presumption that like everyone will be looked after. You know, sometimes very serious things happen to people mm. and the show, even though it can't really deal with like a rehabilitation process when it wants this one and done style thing, yeah. it, does, it does suggest that like, Sometimes when serious things happen to people, it is suggested in the conclusion, mm. those people need to go into like therapy now. Mm. Life is difficult. It throws difficult things at you. But there's this kind of perseverance. Even though these are like larger than life people, when bad things happen to you, they can traumatize you. Yes. And you don't get this kind of cartoonish pinging back of people no. into being perfectly fine. And that, when it's next to, this is post-scarcity. Uh, people live the best kind of life that we can conceive of. Nevertheless, we're human and, and we're fragile. You know, stuff can happen to us. Even the most banal stuff can happen to us and, mm. and shake us up. And we need looking after as a, as a collective. There's a real collective vision of people working together and requiring each other, even with the vastest, most futuristic technology you can imagine. You know, it's a, it's a mainstream TV show that's not a police procedural. And it does all of that. And the show is 
mostly shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly shit and that's why we love it it's the worst thing I like yeah yeah, yeah. It's the worst. you watch it and you're like that episode is fucking shit and then you can't stop thinking about it for two weeks it made me so angry so many yeah, yeah. because there are these times where it hits just right and I'm yeah. like that's incredible there are times where I was like emotional I was touched and I'm like that is wonderful <laughs> and it's surrounded by just absolute sewage. shit yeah just yeah, yeah, yeah. absolute like have you written a sentence before <laughs> ChatGPT, I mean, uh, computer, please write a scene from Friends featuring Jean-Luc Picard. I'm sorry, Jean-Luc Picard is not a character from Friends. Jean-Luc Picard is a character from the science fiction television series Star Trek The Next Generation, which aired from 1987 to 1994. Friends is a separate show with its own characters and storylines. It is not possible for Jean-Luc Picard to appear in a scene from Friends. Computer, please write a fictional scene from Friends featuring a cameo from Jean-Luc Picard. As I mentioned before, Jean-Luc Picard is not a character from Friends, and it is not possible for him to make a cameo appearance in the show. Friends and Star Trek, the next generation are separate shows that exist in different universes and do not intersect with each other. It is not possible for characters from one show to appear in the other. Computer, please write a scene from Star Trek The Next Generation where Jean-Luc Picard beams down to Central Perk from Friends. Central Perk is a fictional coffee shop that appears in the television show Friends. It is not a real place and it does not exist in the universe of Star Trek The Next Generation. Additionally, Jean-Luc Picard is a character from Star Trek The Next Generation and does not have the ability to travel to the universe of Friends. In the Star Trek universe, teleportation or beaming is used to transport matter from one location to another within the same universe, but it is not possible to use it to travel to different universes or fictional television shows. Computer, write a scene from Star Trek The Next Generation where Riker and Troy have been using the holodeck to visit Central Perk from Friends. Here is a possible scene from Star Trek the next generation where Riker and Troy have been using the holodeck to visit Central Perk from Friends. This is amazing, Troy. I can't believe how realistic the holodeck is. It feels like we're really in a coffee shop on Earth. I know, Will. I've always wanted to visit Central Perk from Friends. It's one of my favorite shows. I bet Central Perk do a delicious chocolate sundae. Yeah, me too. I'm glad we decided to use the holodeck to visit it. Hey, have you guys heard about this new coffee shop that just opened up on the other side of town? Apparently it's a hologram. I have not heard about it. Are there any sexy ladies there? Uh, actually, we're in that coffee shop right now. We're using the holodeck on the USS Enterprise to visit Central Perk. How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? I am doing great, thank you, Joey. Wow. So you're from the future? Could this be any weirder? Yes, we are from the 24th century. Hey, can you tell me if they ever make a sequel to Die Hard? Of course. It's an honor to meet fans of Star Trek, the next generation. Computer, continue this scene, but have Worf enter and suddenly attack the friends using a batleth. Here is how the scene could continue with Worf entering and suddenly attacking the friends using a batleth. What is the meaning of this? Why are these humans on the holodeck? I am enraged. He's got uh, a sword. This guy's got Whoa. a sword. I sense Worf is angry. Worf, what are you doing? These are the characters from Friends. Could this guy's forehead be any more covered with ridges? These are not my friends. They are enemies. Prepare to die. Computer, write a subsequent scene that's uh, Captain's Log by Jean-Luc Picard summarizing this scenario. Uh, Picard blames Riker. Captain's log. Stardate 47282.5. We are currently investigating an unusual situation on the holodeck. It appears that the characters from the television show Friends have become self-aware and are now occupying a simulated version of Central Perk. Chief of Security Worf has already attempted to attack the Friends, believing them to be enemies of the Enterprise. I blame Commander Riker. Continue the altercation on the holodeck, uh, leading to Worf apologizing. Worf! Stand down. These are not enemies. They are characters from a television show. I wish to apologize for any discomfort or alarm that I may have caused. As a Klingon, I take great pride in my honor and I enjoy wielding my batleth. 
It was never my intention to dishonor myself or my crew by causing such distress. I understand that my appearance and mannerisms can be intimidating to those who are not familiar with Klingon culture. I will leave the holodeck immediately. What was that all about? Why did he attack us? How are you doing? I am doing okay, Joey, though I am concerned that Worf attacked you. We will make sure it doesn't happen again. You are safe now. Would you like to have sex? I sense you are sexually aroused. Computer, how is it possible that characters from Friends are interacting with characters from Star Trek The Next Generation, given it is not possible for Jean-Luc Picard to appear in a scene from Friends? The self-destruct system has been activated. I'd never watched Star Trek before. I knew enough to say beam me up Scotty while falling under general anaesthetic in year three because my inflamed adenoids were giving me sleep apnea. But discovering it properly as an adult in 2022 was a revelation. Star Trek is sui generis. Star Trek makes protocol camp. And buddy, it sucks. I intend to figuratively twist the good-bad Star Trek quality horseshoe into a full circle by getting caught in the gravity of the worst sentence I have encountered while monitoring Federation space. Occurs 10 minutes and 17 seconds into Star Trek The Next Generation Season 3 Episode 16 entitled The Offspring, when Counselor Deanna Troy says, A friend for Worf. To even understand why this sentence sends my simmering bonds to Heaven's Brain Dungeon, first I will need to load you up with several cumbersome boxes from the Context Truck. First up is Lieutenant Data. He is a robot guy, a glossy space autistic. He longs to be human, but struggles to understand a simple sentence like, Ain't you not gonna do that, mate, lad? Data could punch his hand all the way through your ribcage. Second, Counselor Deanna Troy, the ship's counselor and a half-alien who can do telepathy for emotions. Her role as counselor allows the show to imagine a world where mental health care is as normalised as physical health care, but the writer's general inconsistency and lack of knowledge regarding psychiatric medicine and talking therapies generally reduces her more or less to a gendered caregiver to other more interesting characters. Worf is a Klingon, a bestial ultra-violent race who live to fight though later Klingons are fleshed out to become people and a cipher for how masculinity, ego and honour do or do not fit with the utopian ideals of an enlightened future. At this point in TNG, they mostly feel like weird screaming forehead guys. Worf is a dope and I love him. In this episode, Data builds himself a daughter. She descends from the ceiling in the cold open, looking like a microwaved Mr. Blobby. When watching this episode, I had to pause playback because I choked on a pita bread. Data building another robot to be his daughter is a good chance for the show to talk about inalienable rights. I like this stuff. This stuff to me is good. A little world of philosopher kings driving a big space dodger into a brain teaser. And because it's always so conceptual, exacerbated, by the general context list of being in the fuck end of space. The show revolves around and levers around these abstractions like rights and duty and, you know, trolley problem stuff. Sorry guys, you can't terraform this planet. Our readings indicate this Oxbow Lake is self-aware. Can we really make a lake a refugee? And with that in mind, why is Deanna Troy saying a friend for war? Such a bizarre moment. When discussing what race and gender Data's child ought to be, the primary concern seems to be his socialization. A human male. Very attractive. There's no problem with socialization here. A human female. I like her. A Klingon male. 
A friend for Worf. She knows Worf very well, in fact. And even a cursory familiarity with Worf will tell you his twin loyalties to the Klingon Empire and the Federation are the fundamental contradiction of the guy. And it's not a nuanced thing. Star Trek's exposition has all the subtlety of a Weatherspoon's indoor fireworks display. Kevin, are you sure about this? It does not look safe. Wolf does not want to hang out with a two-day-old robot who has been made to look a little bit like a Klingon. For someone for whom authentic adherence to a form of Klingon cultural fundamentalism defines their entire reason for getting out of bed, putting a box on a child's head that you've written the word Klingon on would not satisfy him. In fact, he would put you in a box with the words rest in peace on it, using a batleth, which is a kind of uh, impractical Klingon sword. She mentions it would be difficult to be a race that isn't represented within the crew of the ship. An Andorian female. Interesting. You'll be the only one on board the Enterprise, Lal. That could make socialization more difficult. A human male. Very attractive. There's no problem with socialization here. A Klingon male. A friend for Worf. And that therefore it would be better to be a white human man. Why? Why have we got this in our space utopia? And it's not like they're talking about a massively different race. It's just a green person. It looks like Orville the Duck, who famously integrated. Seeing Keith perform with Orville made me wonder about their 25-year relationship and whether it had always been as happy as it seemed. I mean, I obviously created a monster in a funny way. And the statement takes on another edge when you remember it's being said in front of Data. Data's a machine, so he could be constructed in any form possible. Data would still be Data if he was a perfect sphere, whereas if he did that to me, I would not be Sean Morley anymore. I would be a crime scene. But Data's whole appearance and manner of being is to reflect and accommodate his human creators, which has thrown him into an uncanny valley of near-perfect resemblance, which gnaws at the centre of his positronic soul. But rather than telling Data he doesn't need to fully conform to humanity, his friends and peers nod along and encouraging his futile Pinocchio quest. If Data ever got what he wanted, all of his defining features would be obliterated and he would suffer an absolute apocalypse of the ego. And the edge gets even more sharper when you realise Data is the cipher by which an audience of autistic adults are reflecting on their role as outsiders in 1980s America. And they are being told their best path for a happy life is to resemble as closely as possible the majority group in how they behave and present themselves. And to the demand that autistic people subsume their own desires and thoughts and behaviours into neurotypical deep cover is key to understanding why the suicide rate is so high. And Troy should know this because she's the ship's counsellor and seems to be concerned primarily with the subject of socialisation. But what does socialisation mean in this context? How does it help someone to simply resemble a race or culture they are not a part of? What does it look like in practice? Hello there, it's always nice to meet a fellow human. Actually, I am a machine. I make myself look like a human to avoid this conversation. Why is it presumed that someone would naturally be more predisposed to friendship with someone of their own race? Why does that exist in the future? Why does someone think that's an inescapable part of life? I can get why right now it's difficult to imagine the path outside of racial distinctions, but why can't we just imagine in the future we sorted it out? It's gone, done, we did it, bim bam bom, bim bam bom, no race. Bim bam bom, no race, say it with me. Like, these guys can imagine a ship going nine times the speed of light or a Jenga tower's come alive and wants to write poetry. But the idea that race stops being a meaningful fundamental wedge between us lot and them lot is just too sci-fi for sci-fi. And that's why I like it. 
The social benefit of utopian thinking is usually characterized as some kind of enthusiasm engine. Praxis carrot, think of good thing, try to make good thing happen. You know, it's not all just gentlemen's holidays where you can order dinner with your voice. You get to find out the hard limits on imagination. Watching TNG feels like an archaeologist rubbing of the 1980s Overton window. What they could depict or couldn't depict because of production censorship, writer's room squabbles, and simply the limited imagination available to certain perspectives in certain points in time. But that is why it's good. When you have to pause the show, point directly into the centre of the television and say, that's fucked. That's when your silly space show has tricked you into engaging critically with how a society that has outgrown discrimination might operate while you're trying to have your dinner. It is literally dinner time. And that's the thing. Star Trek's not very good. And so when you watch it, Star Trek stops being what's out there. It's the show that you build up unconsciously in your own brain. Now that's boldly going. A friend for Engage. The difficulty with Star Trek is that they've decided they have a utopia, but then, like a lot of utopian thinking, how does all of that work and how do you make everything be different without just accidentally putting your current day bad <laughs> ideology into it, right? Yeah. You can go like headline, top of the page, this is utopia, everyone's happy, cool, how does it work? Who cleans up the the bins and and what is it all done by computers? Is it just little robots? Everything gets beamed. And what happens when there's a there's a threat? You know, what happens when when threats do happen? When do you shoot another person? Mm. And these are very, very, very complicated. And it's not like a singular vision. It's a writer's room Mm. and different people come in. And I'm certain some of these are just little spec script ideas people had for other stuff. This show is good and is resonant because it lives in a world that's about the core material of humanity mm. in a utopian condition. Yeah. It is very difficult to work out how all of that hangs together. And so the show is inconsistent. The show has wildly varying like depictions and track records on its own kind of diversity. Mm. It, it definitely starts off, the show begins with incredible ambition and a lot of that goes away. The the gender diversity. Skirts. Do you remember the dudes in skirts? I love that. Stopping, Bring that producers back. stopping male extras kissing in the yeah. background, just like saying, well, we can't have that. And like some of that is just you're making a show that exists mm. inside the wider reality of America, the, the the studio and production system. Yes. And that can that can weigh in on you. And some of it's just the writers have limited imaginations. And the ambition of sketching out a future utopia that still has to exist within the canon of a 1960s wildly xenophobic yeah, and yeah, misogynistic yeah. TV show. They'd be like, oh, can't contradict that problematic show while yeah. trying to make something different while appealing to the same fan base. It's fucked. Like, a really common thing people say about Star Trek is like, oh, I don't understand how... Because uh, it's yeah, a, a problem now, particularly with the modern stuff, is, is so many... Uh, for example, because like Star Trek Discovery is much better on LGBT stuff, on LGBT representation than these these earlier bits and has like a black woman lead uh, that it yeah. got a load of reactionaries really riled up about like, this isn't true Star Trek. And then there's an interesting reaction to that from the sort of liberal Star Trek fan base of going like, oh, I don't understand how you can be right wing and like the show. Why well, can't there? I mean, there's loads of stuff about it. You got to remember that fascists are utopians too and they have an idea of utopia and it actually mm. can be pretty similar to this. So if we think about it like, Yes, there's no... If you take away the tension among the characters, as I spoke about earlier, well, well, then where does the tension come from? 
the outsiders, the other. Mm-hmm. So there is there is unity within the in-group and then the, the, all the threats come from outside. That's a pretty fascist idea. That's, that's like extremely reactionary and that is like structurally built into the show. It's depicting this post-capitalist society, but hierarchy and power and inequality still exist in Starfleet. Starfleet's like a deeply hierarchical chain of command where someone gives orders and those orders are followed without question. And a fascist might look at this show and how everyone just follows orders and never questions them. And the orders are always right. And then you might be like, well, of course they follow the orders, Jack, because it's these superhumans in, the f- in this brilliant future where everyone's really good. So they only give correct orders. It's like, yeah, that's fucking propaganda. And the idea of the prime <laughs> yeah. directive where like, oh, you know, this thing of like, oh, well, they only intervene when they absolutely have to. And it's always, you know, Picard is always ethically correct when he does intervene. Yeah, sure. That's how Americans see their imperialism. Mm. So we have a rule not to do bad things. And yeah. if we do do something, it must be good. Yeah. I mean, precisely, you said like one of the reasons you were initially sceptical about it when you were younger is that your uncle, your cop uncle liked it. Of course yeah. he bloody did. Space cops. I tried to say earlier, it's not a police procedural. Well, it is, isn't it? Starfleet are, um, you know, like the policemen of the, of, they're going around enforcing what they think is correct. They're the policemen Which of the in galaxy. Turn is inconsistent as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like rules that they don't follow, but when they don't follow them, it's like, it's fine when oh, they I'm break a complicated the rules. character because yeah. you see me ruminating in my office. Yeah, so I feel sad about it. I can't be doing whatever I want because I looked out the window at the end just before you see the credits. Yeah, and in that sense, the show, it, like, it doesn't challenge the idea of hierarchy and power inequality. It just fucking perpetuates it. Everyone's got their rank flipping visible on their <laughs> yeah. shirt collar. So everyone's yeah. position in, in society is stamped. Like it's, it's like Brave New World level. Look at the colour of your uniform. How many little pips have you got on your collar? That's how much... I'm going to listen to your opinion. Yeah. I mean, they have a, a colour that's just for command. There's people who are like, there's like a science colour. You're blue if you're science. And then, uh, or sorry, you're blue if you're like science and medical, is it? And then you're, uh, they you're maroon well. if you're command. All the main characters are high ranking officers. The focus, mm. there are episodes here and there where they go beyond that. We focus on the actions and decisions of the officers rather than the lives of people who don't hold positions of power. So yeah. Again, we're perpetuating the idea that the powerful are powerful because they deserve to be. And the idea that they've all worked their way up. Geordie's an engineer because he's the smartest engineer. Picard's in that position because he just, he always makes the right decision. It reinforces that like liberal meritocracy of people are more powerful than you because they deserve to be more powerful than you. And as well, talking about why like fashion right wing people can find good truck in this is that it's dealing with like super people. What if (laughs) we let people... I mean, I know that there's got this whole thing of like, well, people did eugenics in the past, so we're setting our claim yeah, that we're yeah. against eugenics. But they're dealing with like, what if we let people have all the resources they possibly need to become the best that they possibly could be? <laughs> and all of that power of the best possible people yeah. is then transferred into this super organization, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. then controls their actions and expands the reach of their influence. Yeah. And it's a military hierarchy as well. Mm. That's like more disturbing. So on on the one hand, you can be like, oh, it's less militaristic than the original series because you've got kids on the ship. But, and we've already talked about like the kids being in peril, but then it's like, oh, right. So the only way you can learn about and explore yourself and these other civilizations is by joining what is effectively a military organization Mm -hmm. in its its structures. You might say like, oh, it's not military. It's it's explicitly about exploration and learning. It's like, well, it's pretty militaristic. And if there's a war- on that ship. There's, yeah, there's loads of gu- there's everyone's got guns, and then there's not a separate thing where they're like, "Oh, we're at war with the with these aliens." Now we need to call the the, the military. There's, th- mm. That doesn't happen. 
I mean, you know, you could argue that having a separate military is a problem in itself, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, is society has been militarized then. I know we don't mm. see things outside Starfleet that much, but what you do see is de facto militarized. Like the captain of the ship is essentially the king or mm. the CEO. What he says goes. And as much as he is a compassionate and considerate leader, Picard is still a someone at the top of a hierarchy. And in order to show that Picard is a compassionate leader, they regularly show you captains of other ships who are just assholes. <laughs> So you're like, <laughs> I love those episodes. But they're always like, oh, well, like in order to have conflict, conflict always has to come from outside the ship yeah. to, to this kind of writing brief. And so you meet people who are just absolute stubborn dickheads, often racists yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, so, I mean, these people have been institutionally promoted within this super organization, the Federation, mm. time and time and time again. They now control the lives of over a thousand people on this giganto starship. And they're a complete bastard. So like... <laughs> It's only utopian on this ship, you know. Yeah. It's just where the camera allows you. To, you know, you can make a utopia here on Earth if you just only allowed the camera to truck across the nicest bits. Yeah, Except just- that's how they do it in, like, North Korea. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the, people always say, and again, this is a thing I, I see leveled against modern Trek. There's a critique of, like, oh, modern Trek isn't utopian anymore. Well, I don't think it was just, like, universally utopian in this period because you've got, like, yeah, the rogue captain, which is also a thing, a, a trope in the original series. But then you've also got people higher up so quite often there's like an admiral who's either been um taken over there's some really dodgy conspiracy theory type stuff where there's an episode early doors called conspiracy where all of the starfleet admirals have been taken over by some sort of entities aliens that can control Little them bra- literal brain worms yeah literal brain worms <laughs> uh, and then You've also got like mad dodgy. There's all this, these like corrupt admirals who are trying to do secret military things all the time. I think that plays into a lot of you know conspiracy theory stuff about like things like the deep state and and but there's all, there's a lot of stuff that's quite bleak in it. And e- even in TNG, which is seen as the most utopian one, if you think about it for a second, there's a lot of stuff that's quite bleak. And like say the eugenics wars, there's a lot of stuff in the the context of it that isn't particularly nice to think about. I don't think the eugenics wars sounds like a very nice thing. In the TOS, mm. the original series, uh, Kirk occasionally pays Spock a compliment by saying, mm. you know, that was quite a human thing to do. And Kirk means that as a compliment. But obviously yes. yeah, yeah. that's like me saying to like, <laughs> you know, a sort of another That's race. quite that's a quite straight a wh- thing to do. That's quite yeah, a that white quite, thing to do. That's quite a what? white European yeah. thing to say. And I mean that is a good way. That means it was clever. <laughs> it was rational. Not like your silly native opinions. Yeah. And while there's nothing as explicit in that, although... I think they talk to Data the robot that way quite a lot. Yes. Um, you could understand why they think that's okay, but like mm. it's strange when the whole characterization of them is that they are basically as human as anyone else if they realize it. Well, it's 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 put in humanity as th- th- these people are put depicted as Ubermensch and Data's aspiration to be one of them. That is just taken as baseline. It's never yeah, like, of course you'd Data, want to be like this. Data could be something else mm. right that that's never really explored yeah uh, if if the klingons and all these other species are just we live in a pluralist society everyone's values yeah why are people not finding it weird that like data's just imprinted the dominant culture mm. onto himself mm. shouldn't it be like data used to try and live amongst all the cultures yeah why not try and be more like a klingon or whatever there's this feeling that there's a, a great pluralism, but one of humanity's greatest strengths is, is tolerance, yeah. which isn't a, of benefit to others. It's just humans feel good about having that, you know, <laughs> claiming it to other people. Yeah. The feeling in the Prime Directive, they never say explicitly, but it's always like suggested. The reason you're leaving cultures where they still live in caves mm. or pre-war, very low level of, supposed to be in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're like, 
you might find that life sprung up somewhere, but you don't go and meddle and give them a steam engine or a teleporter <laughs> because that yeah. would change the course of their development. But it's always suggested the reason you do that is so that they're going to grow up to become just like humanity yeah, 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 and then yeah. just be another cog in the Federation. They're mm-hmm. seeing themselves just as farmers and they find this is just a more effective method of growing that crop yeah. because they find out yeah. if you two put too much fertilizer on it, they go weird, you know? Because the Federation is um, the inevitable conclusion, right? So despite the show's supposed emphasis on pluralism, human values yeah. and culture are seen as undeniably good and something that others should learn from and will inevitably like progress towards. You know, the Federation is portrayed as this like ultimate moral authority and other cultures need to learn from them or will inevitably come to the same conclusions. Worf, a Klingon, the the enemies from the original Star Trek series, now lives amongst humans and can adapt into it, still maintains your own weird religion. Mm. I feel like a lot of what Worf does is played for laughs because... They have made this race that now can only be played by black people that are inherently bestial, Mm. and that's something that's just written into the series, never mind the little treasure goblin race that crop up now and again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they've got these little weirdly racialized alien creatures, but it's okay and normal and good and progress that Worf comes and lives with us and learns to be like us and exists within our command structure. But when Riker goes up with a Klingon ship, it's just played for laughs because they're silly and they're weird and they're just kind of buffoonish, and then we come back and it's normal civilization mm. has now returned it it likes pluralism but it ends up looking more like going to the zoo than actually <laughs> living in like a united nations do you know yeah, yeah. the animal like the, the the aliens become funny interesting spectacles that you can have a day out with mm-hmm. but really you never have to deal with like the material requirements of genuinely different cultures that live on different planets with different biological mm. physiological and psychological needs and on the subject of psychological needs, I think they they push the boat out too far with the empath Diana Troy thing. Mm. This is a show that doesn't always have a massive understanding of human emotions or no. therapy. I think these two things go in hand. They believe, on one hand, like humanity is the pristine, perfect, golden form, right? This is the ultimate, like, fascist ideal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on the other, they believe also it's ineffable, ununderstandable. What happens in the mind can never be modelled or understood. Data can never be truly human because mm. what we are is special. And it almost feels like divinity like mm-hmm. god's spirit has been breathed into us and it can't be replicated with other materials like machinery we are somehow special and divine and because of that it can't ever really be explained so there's always a cultural goal for me won't even bother you won't get it i'm just a human you're just too thick they never say it they're never going to say oh humans have a soul mm. but that's what it feels like it feels like that that is what data is missing yeah they do but they, they never actually explicitly say that but it feels like that's it, and they can't pin down what he's missing. They can't pin down what the robot's missing. Yeah. And they just, it's just like you can't do contractions very well. Hmm. It's like, yeah, hmm. I think it takes a bit more. <laughs> I think it takes more <laughs> than that to be a person. I also think the women characters are just absolutely failed as well over the... They get some good episodes. You know, some great Crusher and Deanna Troy episodes, but Crusher and Troy are not as fleshed out as... I, think, I mean, I don't think Riker's ever that fleshed out because yeah. he's just an ape. But And that's um, not even talking about... Uh, Natasha Yar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. We'd have to get into some very yeah, exactly. nerdy spoilers yeah, yeah, against yeah, that, yeah, yeah. but deeply problematic. Whoopi Goldberg's cool, and she's a good addition to the show. But she just kind of takes the role that Troy should be playing, and then Troy just never goes anywhere. There's some weird. She has romances with two of the men characters, which are both weird. I just think they're both really clunky in the way they're explored. Beverly Crusher just has a slightly strange will they, won't they thing with Picard. That's not worth it. It's not. Yeah. Seven seasons of a of a such a 
mildly simmering, will they? Won't oh, they? I, I just wish there was enough. more to crush it. I just wish there was more to crush it because I think that you know, Gates McFadden, they're good. They make the characters really interesting, but it feels like that's what the actors put into it more than what the writers put into yes. it. You know, it's a utopian world for some people, but also it is dystopian in a lot of ways because there's a constant feeling of threat. Mm. You know, we live in a utopia and it's post-scarcity and everyone lives a perfect life. There's still a border. There's we a have to worry border. about the enemy. I mean, and even the word, enemies. the final frontier. Yeah. That just means the final border. Yeah. It's a, it's, 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 it's a sh- it, honestly, so much of the show comes down to border expansion and border protection. And, and there have to be enemies then to justify that. So we still need to live in a, a state, you know. Yeah. This is still fundamentally a, a state, even though we're post-scarcity. And everyone's post-scarcity. The other people who attack don't necessarily need anything. They're not like, you know, if, mm. if they didn't have the same level of technology as the Federation, they wouldn't stand a chance anyway. Yeah. So, like, it's not always tremendously clear what's perpetuating any wars, but there has to be a border to justify the underpinning of the show. Well, there has to be a border and there has to be an army. Like, if you want to go and learn about stuff, you have to do so through Starfleet, which is a military organisation, and therefore Mm. it's perpetuating ideas of militarism and authoritarianism. I like that no one is forced by wage labour into performing a function for the Federation. I like that too. People want to feel useful and and they pursue roles in life that makes them useful. But there's this horrible undercurrent which is like well you went to the academy and now you've joined starfleet and now you're in starfleet and now you're this thing and you need to be excellent at it Mm. you need to maintain that excellence and that role absorbs people's identity you know Mm -hmm. when you want to talk about the characters in the show the first thing you're going to say is like what their job is the crush is the doctor right Mm -hmm. because the captain eventually you can go on to talk about like you see them playing an instrument now and again but like their role is their job. And when people talk about defecting or leaving or not even going into Starfleet themselves, if you're talking to a child, mm-hmm. there's disappointment. Yeah. There's disappointment that you're not giving yourself to the state and letting it put you to use. <laughs> it is way more fascistic than people want to give it credit. So I like the way that they they do it. You see them doing interesting things with their spare time and, and Crush is directing these plays and uh, they're putting on performances and data's reading his poetry you know it's cool that they're doing that in a way where the art is just for art's sake they don't have to do it as a side hustle they're not and that they're making it just for the enjoyment of it and also there doesn't seem to be a thing where they're consuming lots of media that's necessarily being produced by others it's really like you know grassroots we're creating mm. this is where we live yeah. we live on the ship and we're going to create stuff and then i think that's really cool and something that doesn't happen in our society enough with like there's there's no like hollywood there doesn't seem to be like a starfleet hollywood where there's these big celebrities and everyone goes and sits and watches the same holodeck thing or something i think that's really interesting but at the same time leisure is still functioning as like a a sort of pressure team building exercise team building exercise like it's and and also you know they're stressed from their job so they need to do this other thing to kind of let off steam and also like do the crew feel weirdly compelled to go and watch the captain and the like high-ranking members put on a play? Because mm. if you want to advance, if you want to, do they? Is there like a weird networking thing that was we're not? It's never really explored because they don't. They're not. The writers aren't interested in it. That feels weird. Going to watch your boss do a poetry reading or or play trombone. I don't know. And and I like the emphasis on spare time. You know, these yeah. people have hobbies. They have full lives. They have the the means to to pursue meaning. 
But the ways in which they do it are so culturally conservative and yeah, it really yeah, bothers yeah, me. Yeah. This has been made during the 90s and everyone just likes classical music. They like poetry. They like doing like stripped down minimalist plays. Yeah. And it's like uh, hip hop died then. You know, that, that whole movement never got anywhere. We've forgotten in the annals of history. There's just loads of like... You'd have to be a very good writer to do a hip hop scene that wasn't cringe. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> And I can, oh my I God, can see can you why they do it. Writing a rap, I love it. Honestly, you just stand up comedy. Yeah. That, that persisted. Yeah, you just <laughs> do a stand up routine. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> a whole episode, he wants to learn how to be funny, and it turns out like <laughs> that kind of vaudevillian thrust staging, like cup of water next to the mic. That's known about in three hundred years. We don't know anything about like. Won't know anything about MC Hammer. <laughs> jazz is still around. You know, they got jazz, they got and jazz. then. That's yeah. the end. Yeah. That's the end of black culture's contribution to the future. I guess it would date it though. I think it's a writing decision of like, I think if you have something futuristic now, because there is an extremely, there's a, in one of the Star Trek reboot movies, there's a bit where they put the Beastie Boys on because uh, Captain Kirk listens to the Beastie Boys and my God, it's not, it doesn't work. I understand. I understand that you're like, well, if we wanted to depict the present, that's the present's gone. Yeah. You know, the present has gone. But I think you could think of things in the 20th century that bad. you could predict, that yeah. you could predict probably is going to be known about in a while. It's not just full Beethoven, you know? Yeah. Because again, when you've got this idea that people are, if there's any suggestion that people are having their spare time and their cultural pursuits, not really because they want to, mm. but because there's an expectation. Do you know there's this one character who's very shy, Barkley? Yeah. And they force him. He's not allowed to be a little weirdo, you know? hanging out in a holodeck all the time they force him to go no you were part of this organised society with an organised culture and you have to participate in it normally the autistic coded character also is constantly going you should aspire to be human you should do a poem poems suck <laughs> let's actually let talk about both just play video games there's, there's two the very holodeck. weird holodeck episodes one where Barclay has made versions of the main characters who are the command people and he's made the women horny for him in the yeah, holiday. and they've made all the um male characters worse sword fighters than yeah him. yeah yeah so but everyone gets to feed into his ego game <laughs> are you saying he should have been allowed to continue doing this <laughs> no he shouldn't have been allowed maybe to to live in a reality where everyone is subservient to him <laughs> yeah. he should have been allowed to be a little gobbly doesn't necessarily yeah, have to do a, a goblin. play you know he doesn't uh, have to do a one-man play and then geordie laforge uh becomes romantically interested in a holodeck version of uh, Leah Brahms, who's like a warp core engineer. And that is a creepy episode. Yeah, he he constructs um, like an AI of someone who really does exist yeah. and falls in love with them, but then also considers himself to have fallen in love with the, with the real person. person. Yeah. But like what he's done is he's, he's taken fragments. He says so in the episode, he's taken fragments from her appearances at conferences. Hmm. Now, if you've ever given, like, a talk, do you think that's a reflection no, of what you'd be no. like at the pub? That's such a weird, like, one-dimensional, perfectly affable, also very good at projecting, constantly talking as though you're five metres away. Yeah. Just a very strange person to hang out with. And there's a sequel episode to it where the real Leo Brahms comes to the ship and Geordie's weird with her, and then she finds out about his creepy holodeck romance and, like quite rightly takes him up on it. But the episodes have kind of written in with sympathy for Geordie and as if, as if like... It's fucking. There's a yeah. lot of. I mean, we don't want to. And that's the, that's the colonial problem that's, that's always in it. It's problem. like yeah, yeah. they go to a place. There's another people, another culture, and it's you know, it's like the soldiers. The movies about Iraq about the American soldiers getting sound. <laughs> they go yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. There's peril for another people. This is 
pivotal in the history of their society. But the episode's about how Picard looks sad because he has to think very hard. Mm. You know, and it's it's trapped within the frame of the limits of imagination at a certain time in a certain place, which unfortunately was 1990s America. And so with all of that in mind, mm. it is deeply embarrassing to be track pilled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you, if you feel the track pill going down, cough. Yeah. And as well, you just you have to be like, yeah, I like this. And, but in order to understand what I mean by that, give me yeah. two hours of your time. <laughs> the worst thing about it as well as you'll end up doing, and I, I think you already have, is there's so much going on in it and there's so many ideas in it that you'll be having a conversation with something and a little voice comes up in your head and goes, this is like that episode of Star Trek. Mm. Yeah, and you have to shut that down. And also you talk to someone else who likes Star Trek and you realise you've done so much uh, apologism for the show to make it more like the one in your head. Yeah. You're not even talking to them about the same show. You're talking to them about a whole different thing. Uh, yeah. Everyone's Star Trek has been inflected to like, everyone agrees it's not good. So everyone's like polyfilling in the gaps with how they'd like it to be. You can't even talk to another fan. <laughs> No wonder they're all described as having communication issues. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, Sean. I fucking love Star Trek Next Generation. Great show I've made. It's yeah. a lot of fun. <laughs> it's the worst thing I like. <laughs> Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Lewis Evans. The title theme was created by Ella Jean. Thank you for listening to Mandos, and special thanks to those of you who support our work by sharing this episode on social media or supporting us at patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party, where you can access bonus content including the original conversation between Sean and Jack, where Jack initially trek-pilled Sean. The Mandos lads are also bringing a brand new live show, Judgment Day, to Mark Kunthleth Comedy Festival at the end of April. They're also both doing solo shows. Sean's is entitled, Sean Morley has been banned from this year's festival, and Jack's doing his character Barry Shafto in Do You Know How to Kill a Ghost? I do, and I will explain at this event. Thank you for listening. Thank you.